Good morning, uh, and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Julian Sanchez. I'm a senior fellow here, and it is my signal privilege to welcome you to the inaugural uh, Cato Institute Surveillance Conference. Uh, this has been called uh, the Information Age, uh, which almost uh, by definition means that our era is also an age of surveillance, uh, since surveillance is uh, how information is gathered and assembled. Information is the uh, central currency of uh, power in our era, which means it is how we strive to protect ourselves against uh, really novel threats uh, in a uniquely decentralized era where small groups of people can pose the kind of threat uh, to a nation state previously reserved for uh, other nation states. Uh, at the same time, the architecture of monitoring and potentially the architecture of control that we are constructing in order to make ourselves safer uh, threatens to undermine really the preconditions of liberal democracy and of a free society. Um, uh, we, we are tracked in our daily lives as a side effect of the technologies we use to communicate uh, every day uh, almost accidentally. It is a, a byproduct of the way the technologies work that, as never before, when we talk to a friend or lover or a family member, when we uh, read the newspaper, uh, when we investigate topics of interest to us, whether they're uh, involved in uh, global geopolitics or uh, our own most intimate medical conditions, uh, a trace is left. It's often uh, hard to keep track of how tracked we are. In many ways, uh, the entities that gather uh, increasingly minute and vast quantities data about our activities, um, thanks to sophisticated um, uh, bulk data analysis tools uh, may in some ways know us better even than we know ourselves. Uh, these issues have come to the forefront of uh, our national conversation recently uh, in significant part because of the disclosures of Edward Snowden regarding the uh, incredible scale and scope of collection by the National Security Agency. Uh, but the technologies uh, used in intelligence uh, and in the name of, of, of national security uh, also increasingly are finding their way into uh, domestic law enforcement efforts, as, uh, as I think often been the case in our history. Uh, we find that uh, the cutting edge of military technology um, is within a few years often widely deployed law enforcement technology. And so, of course, this presents <coughs> Difficult questions, questions that we're often, uh, if you follow debates about privacy, forced to uh, deal with in the language of science fiction uh, because, of course, it involves projecting forward the implications of these new technologies, uh, not just as individual novelties, uh, but in their aggregate effect on our autonomy and our relationship with the state. Um, looking back to the mid, middle of the last century in our history, we also know uh, the terrible price that can be exacted 
when secret surveillance tools are used without adequate oversight. Um, we know that across many presidents, uh, with many parties in power, uh, we have seen how the ability to secretly surveil um, not just enemies of the state, but enemies of the regime in power um, can be turned to entrench that power. Uh, we know, of course, most famously of how uh, G. Edgar Hoover's FBI used the power to surveil uh, as uh, a tool of power against Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but also a whole range of anti-war, uh, feminist, leftist, dissidents, um, as a way of trying to ensure uh, that democracy did not progress more quickly than uh, the people uh, holding the reins of power were prepared for. And so as we face uh, a, uh, a world in which not just because of what intelligence uh, agencies do, but because of what the services we rely on uh, to provide us with everything from our, our calendars to our, uh, our, our daily you know, minute conversations are doing, uh, we need to think very carefully about how this unprecedented aggregation of information can be made compatible with a liberal democracy and with a free society. Uh, that's why uh, it is, uh, again, my uh, extraordinary pleasure to be able to introduce someone who has been at the forefront of the fight to ensure that uh, the imperative to gather information to protect ourselves from those who would do us harm um, cannot be used uh, as an, ex an excuse or a pretext to broaden monitoring of innocent and peaceful American citizens. Um, Congressman Thomas Massey, as many of you know, is uh, with his colleague Zoe Lofgren responsible for an amendment um, that by a, an overwhelming bipartisan margin passed the House of Representatives that aimed to ensure that information gathered for national security purposes by targeting foreigners could not be used in routine investigations by the FBI or other law enforcement agencies uh, to spy on Americans unconnected with those uh, foreign intelligence purposes. Um, that uh, amendment was, uh, despite the enormous margin by which it passed the House, uh, recently removed in conference from uh, intelligence authorization bill. Um, is a pattern, again, those of us who have been watching uh, the legislative effort to rein in the intelligence agencies will find uh, all too familiar. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that, again, especially in the House of Representatives, we find uh, a, uh, a really essential group of legislators who are willing to work across party lines um, to protect the essential liberties that uh, really lie at the foundation of our republic. We are a, a, a country in many ways founded because we did not like uh, government agents prying into our business. And so uh, I can think of no one better to launch uh, the uh, really astonishing lineup of experts and practitioners we have assembled today than uh, the congressman from the 4th District of Kentucky, uh, who is 
uh, in addition to his uh, profound commitment to civil liberties, uh, a uh, MIT graduate with multiple degree, degrees from that fine institution, uh, a founder of a, a technology company, uh, and uh, someone who uh, it is my extraordinarily uh, privilege to introduce to you, Congressman Thomas Massey. Well, there are a lot of experts in the room today on um, this legislation and our efforts and what the government's been doing. What I want to share with you is the battle that we're fighting in Congress. And to give you a peek behind the curtain of what we go through when we try to reform uh, some of the unconstitutional spying that's gone on in this country. Uh, and I will defer to the crowd on, on some of the, and particularly Julian, who's an expert on uh, some of these the finer points of these issues. Uh, and then I also need to give credit to Zoe Lofgren and Rush Holt, who were the co-sponsors of this amendment. They actually probably did more work on this amendment than I did, but uh, we felt like a Republican had to introduce it, and I was the only Republican that was willing to introduce this uh, bill, this amendment that we had all worked on. So what I want to do is uh, just give you an overview, really, of three different legislative efforts. That would be the Amash Amendment to the DOD Appropriations Bill in 2013, the Freedom Act in the House. I won't get into the Senate version of it, but what happened in the House, and then the Massey-Lofgren Amendment in the House. But first, let me give you a little bit of my background and tell you sort of where I am ideologically. In 1993, when I was finishing my thesis at MIT, I looked up at the uh, television and saw something happening in Waco, Texas that disturbed me. Uh, and what I saw was there was a group of people that was easy to vilify. The left did not like them because they were clinging to guns and religion. And the right did not like them because they weren't clinging to a religion that they recognized and the individual was probably a, a polygamist at, the, um, at Waco, but that didn't justify what I saw. What I saw were tanks running over children's go-karts and dozens of people dying in a fire. And I decided there's something wrong here with the left-right paradigm. There's something wrong with civil liberties in this country. And that's when, looking back, I decided that I was a civil libertarian. Uh, another point I want to make is that in Republican primaries across the country, the, the districts have been so gerrymandered that most of them are either red or blue, and it ends up being a race to the right or a race to the left in a lot of these congressional districts. And in my case, it's a Republican district, and there were seven candidates in a primary, and everybody was trying to be more conservative than everybody else. But um, fortunately, thanks to the efforts of some of you in this room to inform my constituents, and thanks to the efforts of Rand Paul, who had just finished two years earlier running in Kentucky, people in Kentucky were in tune with uh, the fact that our civil liberties have been violated by the Patriot Act and other pieces of uh, legislation. And so I campaigned on that instead of trying to be more to the right than the next person. And it was obviously, uh, it worked, and I'm here. Uh, extremely frustrated some days at what happens. Like last night when the Massey-Lofgren Amendment was it was stripped behind closed doors from the appropriations bills. It was actually amendment to the DOD appropriations bill, and it was stripped from the omnibus part and parcel. There was nothing left of it, and um, 
that was very frustrating to see, and of course the omnibus passed without that legislation on it, but I'll get into that a little bit. Let me describe my colleagues and, and myself as well. I'll include myself in this. When I came to Congress, I'm an engineer. I thought if you had all of the facts on your side, you could win the day, and that your case uh, would be a closed case, open shut. Um, but what I discovered is that we're all, we're not voting algorithms, we're soft mammals that go there and press buttons, and we possess fully all of the faults that the general population possesses, no additional intelligence um, to speak of, and a greater degree of hubris. Um, by virtue of winning the election, some people think they got a chip that instructs them on uh, how to know everything better than their congressman. In fact, when I first got to Congress, one congressman told me that he was advised by an elder congressman when he got there that I always vote the way my constituents would have me vote, unless, of course, I know something about this legislation that they don't, which is always the case. And, and they use that mentality to their advantage in Congress, and I say they, I mean the leadership, which generally opposes any reform to the um, intelligence community's activities, they uh, use this on congressmen. And uh, for instance, I'll, I'll start with some pre-Snowden legislation, the CISPA, the Cyber Intelligence Sharing and Protection Act, which was, uh, we were actually working on that in the House. It had just been debated in the House. It had just passed when the Snowden revelations came out. So it was actually helpful, the timing of those revelations and disclosures, in that we could point back and say, see, this is what we were talking about could happen if uh, CISPA passes. But when they did CISPA, it was, it was interesting. We had um, classified briefings. You know, they bring the generals in and the computer experts uh, from the CIA and the NSA. And they, I remember one comical uh, briefing where there was a, a computer geek in and I have a lot of nerd pride, so I can call people geeks, but um, he was sitting there and he was doing a demonstration of how the Russians could hack into your computer. Well, he was running two programs on the computer at the same time, so he's actually hacking into the computer he was typing on. And that was interesting to him, but I don't think it made sense to any other of the congressmen. You know, to him, he was running two different threads on this computer, and so this was a novel thing he was doing. And he was typing, typing in like hexadecimal numbers into a C prompt. You know, he's down at the root level, but he could see what was going on in the windows, and his program crashed. His simulator crashed, and he was like, oh, darn it. And the general is like standing there, like oh, shaking his head, and I'm thinking, nobody realizes your program crashed in this room. <laughs> you could just fake this whole thing. Uh, but anyways, they convinced everybody in that room that now they knew something nobody else knew and they were qualified to vote on CISPA and vote for CISPA even though their constituents would not have them vote for CISPA. Um, then we had the Snowden revelations, I'll call them, and then uh, Congressman Amash, who is really the leader, he is the person that people go to in the House when they want to know how the, what the legislation really does, because he has an excellent staff, and uh, he himself just pours through these bills. So he introduced an amendment to the DOD appropriations bill to try to stop the, uh, the bulk collection of all your metadata. Because actually, as, as Justin Amash points out, the metadata is 
probably more dangerous than the actual content uh, when they can realize how you're interacting socially and who you're interacting with. So he sought to, uh, you know, to rein that in. And, but, and so that's the first of the three bills I'm going to discuss. But let me tell you why this was an, appro why this was an amendment to an appropriations bill. The leadership and all the chairmen of the committees of respective jurisdiction do not want to reform the intelligence community's activities. They just don't want to do it. And, they, and in the House of Representatives, because the committee structure and the leadership structure, they have so much power. We can introduce all the wonderful bills we want. We're up to HR like 5,600 in this Congress. So there's been 5,600 bills introduced. But the leadership and the chairman decide which bills come to the floor. So, you know, those of us like Justin Amash and I and Zoe Lofgren that are trying to get legislation to the floor, we have to look for opportunities. And they're, they're few and far between. In fact, it reminds me, as an engineer, it reminds me of like that first invention where they tried to do movies and this thing rotated. It was called a, a daedalum or a zoetrope, but it had little slits in it. You've probably seen one of these in a museum. And you look, and a slit goes by, and you can see a picture on the other side of the drum as it's spinning. And that's occasionally photons pass through that drum. And that's the way I look at our legislative opportunities, is occasionally there's a slit in the drum that goes by, and you could get a few photons in there. And uh, that one of those opportunities is in the form of a limitation amendment to an appropriations bill. Congress has the power of the purse, and the sort of democratic thing that the leadership has agreed to do, uh, merely to keep their leadership, because there would be a revolt if they didn't, is to allow us to, anybody in the House, it's one of the rare democratic aspects of the House, anybody in the House can offer any amendment they want. You can write it down on, in your handwriting and submit it to the clerk on any appropriations bill. But it's very constrained because there are all these rules around it. You can't legislate. You can't, you can't affect existing code. All you can do is limit how the money is spent. And so that was how uh, Justin Amash's amendment was drafted. It's, and it's very hard to achieve what we want to achieve. It'd be better if we could sit down and write a bill that goes in and changes the US code. But that's not what these limitation amendments do. And boy, he caught the attention of the world. Um, he caught the attention of the leadership. Uh, he had the world bearing down on him uh, for, for his efforts. No good deed goes unpunished. Uh, for his efforts, one of our colleagues called him in the media Al-Qaeda's best friend. And of course, that got used against him in a campaign, in a primary. Uh, and so this is, this is what you run up against uh, when you try to introduce legislation. That, that bill failed by only seven votes, but it was heroic that we got within seven votes. Because let me tell you who voted no. Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer voted no. That's a minority leader and the minority whip. Uh, John Boehner, who's the speaker, and rarely ever votes on legislation, decided to vote on this piece of legislation. He voted no. The, uh, Eric Cantor voted no, and the majority whip Kevin McCarthy voted no. So the entire leadership voted against it. All of the committee chairmen that had any jurisdiction over this voted against it. And yet we almost got half of the House of Representatives to go against all of the leadership on both parties and all of the committee chairmen and ranking members. So, uh, and now that gets us to a, an interesting point. Uh, these folks who voted against that bill was like watching them put their hands into a wood chipper. 
because I knew they were voting against the will of their constituents. And they went home and did town halls, the ones that will still do town halls. Uh, and I watched town halls, other congressmen's town halls on YouTube, for the same reason most people watch NASCAR, <laughs> as for the wrecks, to watch the pileups. And if you try to convince your constituents you're pro-liberty and you're not, and you've got a voting record that shows you're not, you're going to have a wreck. And uh, these, these folks that were on the wrong side of this vote, the ones who are still brave enough to do town halls, they went through the wood chipper back home. And this presented an opportunity. They came back and said, my gosh, we've got to do something. So um, let me see how much time I have here. The, they came back and said, we've got to do something. So we had the Freedom Act. And they said, what do we do? And so uh, Justin Amash was the leader in this, and a lot of us worked on this. And we got Jim Sensenbrenner, who was the original Actually, this was his bill, but he was the original uh, author of the Patriot Act, and he, he feels like he was you know, more or less misled when he passed the Patriot Act. They told them they wouldn't do things with it, which, with which they actually went and did. So he wanted to right that wrong, so he introduced the Freedom Act, and a lot of us had good input into that. It started out as a great bill, and everybody wanted to do something because they were getting beat up back home. So we got like 151 co-sponsors on this thing, which is, which is tremendous. And um, it had great reforms in there. Closed backdoor loopholes, uh, stopped the uh, bulk collection of meta metadata without uh, tying the hands of the intelligence community to stop or, or uh, to intercept terrorist communications. It didn't tie their hands at all. And uh, so it was a great bill. And this gets me to another point where another one of those slits in the drum where it goes by and you have an opportunity. A great bill on its own is not going to make it to the floor of the House. Uh, another opportunity to get your legislation on the floor is to attach it to something that must pass. And so the Patriot Act uh, is going to, provisions of it will expire because it's not permanent, some of it's temporary. P provisions of it will expire. So this was attached. Reluctant, reluctantly, we, um, it was attached to the reauthorization of those Patriot Act uh, provisions that were going to expire. But here's what happened. Uh, so the bill goes into committee, and it got eviscerated. It was gutted. Uh, and then to add insult to injury, after it came out of committee, and some of us were still saying, is it worth passing? Is it not worth passing? Uh, we were torn. Is it, is it better to, to take a little bit now and reauthorize the Patriot Act and get more later, as long as we're moving in the right direction? But, and so we sort of waited on the sidelines. We didn't condemn it yet. But then it went, when it came out of committee, they took it to six different intelligence organizations in this government, and it got rewritten again. And then they brought it to the floor of the House, and there was no opportunity to offer amendments to it. In fact, it, at this point, it had been gutted so much and distorted so much that 75 of the original 151 co-sponsors wouldn't even vote for the bill. So you know it's changed a lot if a co-sponsor won't vote for the bill. Uh, now, the primary sponsor of bills, what I've, what I've noticed is they get this zeal for the deal, and they want to see their bill pass. And they, were t they will tolerate more. Um, playing or tinkering with their bill than any of the other co-sponsors. So uh, Sensenbrenner stuck with it. 
But to show you how bad it was, all of the people that voted against the Amash Amendment, the chair of the Intelligence Committee, the chair of Judiciary, the, the, um, the majority leader, the minority leader, they all voted for the Freedom Act, even though they were the modified Freedom Act, even though they weren't co-sponsors. And um, it passed the House, and then recently there was some activity in the Senate, and somebody else will have to talk about that because I didn't track exactly the changes that happened to it in the Senate, although the vote was close over there. I'm not sure if I would or would not have voted for the Senate bill. It was a tough call. So that gets us to, uh, to my bill or amendment, which was an amendment to the DOD appropriations bill in 2014. Now, we're a full year after the Snowden revelation, and nothing has been done. The, uh, and to describe the, the sort of mountain that you face when you try to reform the NSA or any of the intelligence activities from a Congress, I need to uh, tell you a, a story or a joke, if you will, that comes from the 80s. So it's a little bit dated, but it still applies. Do you remember in the 80s when you bought computers? You did, there was no internet. You didn't go on Dell's website and buy a computer. You went into like the IBM store, and they were, you know, they were on pedestals, and you would go check out the PCXT. This has got an 8088 processor. It's got 512K of RAM. And they would, you know, the salesman would tell you all the wonderful things this computer could do for your business. Um, so at the time, there was a joke that said, what's, what's the difference between a car salesman and a computer salesman? Does anybody know the difference? Well, the car salesman knows when he's lying to you. It, the, the computer salesman doesn't actually know when he's lying to you. Well, let me tell you, we have no shortage of car salesmen or computer salesmen on the WIP team in Congress. Those are the ones responsible for describing to you what the bill does, what it actually does, and whether you should vote for it or not. And some of them will, will lie to you because they, they know they're lying to you, and some of them, probably the majority of them, don't even know what's in the bill. They just know it's their job to get you to vote for or against it. And so I wanted to read to you the advisement from my, uh, the majority whip on the Massey-Lofgren Amendment. This, came, this was an email that was sent to every congressional office by... Uh, the whip, the majority whip, it says, whip, L legislative director alert, DOD approves Massey Amendment, FYI, dear colleague, and this is sent uh, by, on behalf of the House Committee on Judiciary, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense. Dear colleagues, Islamic Radical terrorists are on the march in Iraq, and the leader of ISIL has publicly threatened to attack America. Syria has become a vortex of jihadists from across the globe, and the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Homeland Security have warned of the growing threat these jihadists pose to our own homeland. State control has collapsed in Libya, and rival gangs of radical terrorists have established safe havens that rival those in Afghanistan prior to 2001. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Taliban, Haqqani Network, and Al-Qaeda continue to fight. Moreover, the administration has released the Taliban Five from Guantanamo, emboldening the terrorists. The terrorist danger is grave and growing. The terrorist threat is not contained overseas. The U.S. homeland remains a prime aspiration and target. This amendment would create a blind spot for the intelligence community, tracking the terrorists with direct connections to U.S. homeland. Last month, the House overwhelmingly passed H.R. 3361, the USA Freedom Act, 
which expressly prohibits the government from using communications to or from persons who appears to be located in the United States, except where the communication relates to unlawful foreign target or to protect against immediate threat to human life. A similar amendment to the one offered tonight was defeated after a full debate at the House Judiciary Committee. The House voted on an overwhelming bipartisan basis to provide the intelligence community with the tools it needs to keep Americans safe while restoring public confidence that the appropriate safeguards are in place. Now is not the time to stop intercepting communications of known terrorists. Now is not the time to blind our intelligence community to the threat. Vote no on this amendment. And so that's the letter that my leadership sent to every member of Congress about this. Now, most, that went to their legislative team. The, that's the ones responsible for reading the bill and informing their congressmen of what's in the bill. Now, congressmen don't have time to read all that, so they get one sentence when they show up at the floor of the House. And here's the sentence that the whip put out. Uh, there's, you know, there's like 10 bills, 10 amendments. They walk in, they got to vote on 10 amendments. It's like speed round, two minutes per amendment. So they got one sentence here. Massey, Republican Kentucky amendment, prohibits funds from being used to fully exploit lawfully collected foreign intelligence information collected under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So uh, prohibits, basically prohibits us from catching terrorists. All, all our amendment did is require them to have probable cause and a search warrant. That's all it did. They could do everything they were previously doing. And then uh, that's the, the, uh, the main part of the amendment. There was a second part of the amendment which would prohibit the government, the U.S. government, from forcing our companies to put back doors, security back doors, in their products, whether it's encryption technology that you trust. It would keep, you know, the government presumably uh, can keep, can make companies brain damage their products so that it's easier for the government to get to your data. And they can do that in hardware and software. So our bill also would prevent the government from forcing companies to do that. So um, in spite of this whip effort to keep everybody off of this bill, we, it passed 293 to 123. Now, I think the reason it passed which, with such a large margin is that people are becoming more and more informed about this and congressmen go back home and they get tore up over this and they, it's like an electric fence and the cows put its nose to it too many times and they don't want any part of that fence anymore. So I, I will concede they probably didn't read my bill, a lot of them that voted for it. Uh, but they voted for it because these are intuitive creatures and intuitively they felt like this was the right thing to do. And, uh, and I appreciate that. That and, you know, Amash was a co-sponsor. Sensenbrenner was a co-sponsor. Um, we had a lot of good co-sponsors. On, on the Republican side and on the Democrat side, Rush Holt had, had really worked on that provision to keep the uh, government from forcing companies to put the back doors in their products. So that passed. That was... Uh, an amendment, a limitation amendment to the DOD appropriations bill, which by all rights should have been in this omnibus that passed last night. But it got stripped behind closed doors and uh, never showed up in the final bill, which is very unfortunate. I will have some good news for you at some point in this speech, I guess. Um, let's see. So, you know, that, that brings us, I guess, to where we are uh, right now, which is what, what are we going to do in the next Congress? Let me tell you the good news. So inside of Congress, 
we have all these caucuses. There's like the Aviation Caucus, the Tea Party Caucus, the Diabetes Caucus, the Ready Mix Caucus for concrete. Like, there's a caucus for everything. And uh, your constituents are always calling you up, why aren't you on this caucus? Don't you care about my issue? I want to tell them, well, these caucuses never meet. They don't do anything. But I don't tell them that. Uh, I'll just do what they want me to do. And, uh, but there is one caucus that meets twice a month throughout the year when we are in Congress, and that's the Liberty Caucus. And this was started by Congressman Ron Paul, and then Justin Amash took up the mantle. And it's an invitation-only caucus. You can't join it to burnish your credentials. This is a problem with the caucuses. That's what most people are doing. They're joining the Tea Party Caucus because they want, want to appeal to their Tea Party community or uh, you know, other, other various conferences and caucuses. This is invitation only. And we have about 36 people that are invited, and we regularly have 24 that show up to this, and, and this is every other week while we're in session. And it's, it's our opportunity to inform at least 24 members, and to debate what should be in the legislation or what should be in the amendments. And it's a, it's a great group for us. And the good news is, and we invite Democrats too, it's not just a Republican thing, uh, depending on the situation, like on, I, on CISPA, we invited Democrats to, that, um, to those meetings. Uh, it's a great thing, but it's going to get better because these primaries that happen that nobody pays attention to. No, everybody's watching Senate primaries and Senate races. Nobody pays attention to the House races. And I think we picked up a lot of civil libertarians, or at least people who are informed on civil liberties in this, in this last election. Uh, and so I'm excited. We're probably going to grow that caucus by about 10 people, at least, on the Republican side. And I'm not sure. I haven't met with the Democrat freshman yet. And I think we're going to gain members there. And if you look at how these votes break down, uh, whether it's the Amash Amendment, the Massey-Lofgren Amendment, or uh, co-sponsors to the Real Freedom Act, uh, it doesn't break down Republican or Democrat. It's, you know, there's an aisle in the middle of Congress. It, uh, left and right side of the aisle, it does not break down that way. It, it more often breaks down on how long have you been in Congress? How recently did you get there? Uh, and the ones who have arrived more recently tend to be more in tune with this issue and more representative of the will of the people. The other bit of good news is that uh, CISPA stalled in the, it, its support for it. I'm sure there were a lot of people that voted for it in the House that after the Snowden revelations came out, uh, wished they hadn't voted for CISPA, but it did stall in the Senate. And I think it's going to be hard to get that thing moving again, hopefully. Uh, because of all of the new information that we have. And then, um, finally, the Patriot Act's going to expire. That's, that's good news, because what it means, or provisions of it, what it means is there's an opportunity, one of those slits that pass by where you can get a few photons in. There's an opportunity to get some reform there, because they desperately want to reauthorize the Patriot Act. And so uh, that's the good news. Those are the opportunities. And uh, in closing, I'll tell a quick story about my daughter. I have four children, eight, they're 18, 16, 14, and 10. And the youngest one, I think, is the biggest civil libertarian of the group. She was nine when I had a staff retreat on my farm. I brought all, like 15, all 15 members of my staff to my farm to spend a couple of days. And my wife said, where in the heck are they all going to sleep? 
And I, and, uh, I said, well, we'll kick the kids out of their bedrooms. Most of them have bunk beds. And the kids can sleep on the floor in the living room. And um, my daughter, my nine-year-old daughter, I, I've been surveilled ever since she was born, so I'm used to this. She was waiting in the shadows, listening about this, this staff retreat that was going to happen on our farm. And she comes out of the shadows and says, Dad, you, you really going to make me sleep on the floor? Uh, just so those people from Washington, D.C. can visit you? And I said, honey, it'll be just like camping. You'll, you'll have fun. It's only for a couple nights. And she put her hand on her hip and she said, Dad, but what you're really telling me is you're letting government get in my bedroom. <laughs> so, and that's not even a, a talking point I used in any of the campaigns. So she's listening to some other news outlet. Uh, but she's definitely a civil libertarian. If, I don't know if I have a, a minute or two to take questions. So can, do we have any time? Yeah, 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 about five minutes. Okay. There are audience questions. I think we have uh, time for that before our first panel. Uh, our uh, uh, staff here will uh, come around with a microphone, so please just identify yourself and uh, speak into the microphone. I think this gentleman. I'm Ed Teriakin from uh, North Carolina. Thank you for your comments. Appreciated it. Um, Congressman, I, I uh, like to play a parlor game when we have people over at our house. I ask my invitees, Edward Snowden, hero or traitor? What do you think your colleagues on the Hill would say if you asked them that question? Well, I can tell you the leadership. First of all, when I'm asked that question, uh, I think it's sort of a distraction. Uh, I, I will tell you what I think, but I think it's a distraction. Uh, they use him, or the, they try to create animosity toward him to downplay the issue. And regardless of what you think about what he did or how he did it, it doesn't, it doesn't ameliorate the fact that we're all being spied on and, no, and something needs to be done about that. So I think it's a little bit of a distraction. I can tell you they think he's a traitor. I can tell you uh, they would love to try him for treason. And... Uh, they're, they're infuriated. And uh, now, my own personal opinion, I think he did a tremendous service to this country by getting this information out. And I, and I will also tell you, this isn't part of the good news, but there's more to know. Like, it's not, it wasn't a complete release of everything that I think is being done that's wrong. As Congressman, we're, we're privy to things, that, and I've, I know about things that um, disturb me just as much as the revelations that, that we've heard from him. So I, th I think he's done a great service to the country. Um, your bill would have, uh, your amendment would have required a warrant. Uh, by the way, I'm David Eisenberg from Coscob, Connecticut. Um, your bill would have required um, warrants and stuff like that before certain surveillance acts took place. But we also know that um, uh, uh, there's a parallel construction activity that's going on um, in the more civi civilian-oriented law enforcement organizations, um, would your um, amendment have stopped 
parallel construction? And more generally, could you speak to the issue of parallel construction? Um, absolutely. So let me tell you just a little bit more about the amendment. The US government collects tons of data, I mean terabytes of data, uh, under the presumption that it might have foreign communications in it. And then um, we're not stopping them from doing that. This amendment would not stop them from collecting the haystack of data. But what, what we don't want them to do is, uh, for civilian purposes, like the FBI or the IRS, go into that data and start mining it uh, for US person stuff that has nothing to do with terrorists. Or if they want to do it, they've got to have a warrant and, and uh, probable cause for that individual. You can't go on fishing expeditions in there. Uh, if we could stop them from doing that, then it would uh, somewhat obviate the need for some to reform the parallel construction. I mean, they're doing parallel construction because they found out about something in an unconstitutional way. And then they're trying to construct a constitutional way, like a traffic stop, for instance. Uh, and just to be honest with you, I, th I think a lot, some congressmen, maybe not a lot of them, but some congressmen are afraid of this issue because they might end up in a parallel construction situation where uh, the intelligence community knows something about that, and in retribution, they leak it to the FBI who pulls over a congressman uh, for some re one reason or another. But I'm, I'm very troubled by parallel construction. Uh, I think it's wrong. I think the best the, the way that I could stop it is to keep them from having access to that information that unconstitutionally, because they're trying to reconstruct a constitutional way to come up with that information. So that's what my amendment would do, is require the Constitution to be followed if they're going to get that data in the first place, or, or mine that data for U.S. persons' information for crimes that have nothing to do with terrorism. Thank you. Thank you so much, Congressman. Thank you.